You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermasters, Hunter, Samuel, Adam, and Birdsong. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Fat Jack, Ivy, Jess, Mark, Mike, and Eliho and I. And of course, our newest Commodore, Legends LARP Productions. enjoy those old wartime broadcasts that they used to show before movies back in the 40s, and the World War II radio bulletins. Both of them have this character that really just gets my patriotic engines revving. I seriously considered doing the whole episode today in that style. Welcome to the Pirate History News Hour, brought to you by cigarettes, asbestos, and lead paint. Lead paint, good to the last drop. First up, headlines. Victory. In the War of the Three Emperors, German Emperor Leo and Tsar Peter punched the Sultan in the jaw at the gates of Vienna. The Turks are in full retreat, chased across Hungary into the mountains of Transylvania. Hello, Ivan. Betrayal. French King Louis used the fighting in the east to snap up land in Flanders. This act of aggression angered many on the continent. Looks like Louis is in a real pickle. Most of his allies have abandoned him, everyone except his close friend, Charles of England. I can see the egg on old Lewis's face from here. I really wanted to do a whole episode of that, but I'll spare you and my vocal cords. Regardless, Louis was in a difficult situation. He endured L'Affaire des Poissons and the subsequent witchcraft panic in his court, and then he suffered all of that bad press from the War of the Reunions, Catholic Europe was unhappy with Louis. Well, everyone was, but the Catholics in particular. So Louis bid to reclaim the goodwill he felt he deserved through a policy of conversion by the sword. This is episode 149. War! Oppression! French King Louis, in a bid to secure his tenuous hold on power unleashed a campaign of terror against his Huguenot minority. And that's it, I promise. For now. Given the 
World War II tone that I've set up here, I do want to couch this next bit very carefully. I'm in no way comparing what the Huguenot population in France in the 1680s went through to what the Jewish people went through in the Holocaust. What I am doing, and what a lot of reputable historians have done as well, is comparing what the Huguenots went through to what the Jews went through in post-Reconquista Spain, beginning in 1492, that policy of pogrom and inquisition that forcibly converted or expelled all of the Sephardi Jews from Spain. There are a ton of differences between those two stories, both in the tactics used and in the response, but we'll get to those in a second. First, I want to highlight the similar role that both minority groups played within their respective societies. Let's say that you're the monarch of a deeply stratified, feudalistic kingdom. The aristocracy rules everything, but you sit at the very top. And then there's this huge, uneducated, peasant underclass that does all the labor. They do it because there is a small group of priests in the middle that tell them that all of this is God's plan. Now that's the medieval feudal model. That's the model upon which the French three estates are built. And of course we all know how that would end up. In that model, though, you will eventually find a need for an educated middle class. You know, those people who would be doctors and accountants and merchants, jobs that the church really wasn't positioned to do and that the aristocracy wouldn't do. It's hard to convince hundreds of thousands of serfs to live in perpetual destitution when they see those well-fed, happy, middle-class families. The only way to do so is to assure that peasant underclass that those middle-class people aren't going to heaven. Naturally, though, should your rule find itself on shaky footing, the very best idea is to blame it on those literate, professional merchants and doctors, and then chase them out of your country, because that sort of thing never backfires, except, of course it will, and it always did. Back in Spain, when the Jews were expelled, it had serious repercussions on the education and economy of the Spanish, and here, in 1681, it was going to do so again. Now, the Edict of Nantes was still in full effect in France. It legally protected all of the rights that the Huguenots, who, remember, had just returned from fighting in the Dutch War, it protected all of the rights they enjoyed. But Louis was beginning to pull back from the Edict of Nantes. He adopted a policy known as Quius Regio, Ius Religio, whose realm, his religion. That's an old Roman principle that was originally intended to promote religious tolerance. You know, Roman provincials were allowed to practice whatever religion their realm followed, as long as they said a prayer for the emperor. That's something that the early Christians famously refused to do. But Louis used that principle to promote religious intolerance. His realm, his religion. Initially, 
Louis began his persecution of the Huguenots in a fashion that was technically within the bounds of the Edict of Nantes. The most visible form that this early anti-Huguenot action took was in the housing of dragoons exclusively in Huguenot homes. Back in civics class, when we were learning about the U.S. Constitution, I was confused by the Third Amendment. That's the amendment that prohibits the housing of soldiers in private homes. This was not much of a problem back when I was attending civics class, but it was a problem in the early modern world. They called the practice billeting, a French word originally. This was an old, old practice. And it didn't have to be horrible. It could and often was innocuous. When medieval armies on the march billeted in the castles of friendly regional lords, it was just the norm. That's what the castle system was for. But it could be a violent tool of war as well. When medieval lords billeted their armies in the castles of rebellious regions, that was an aggressive act. There was a military aspect to that, obviously. There was an army on your land, and they could keep rebellious forces from organizing with the threat or the use of force. And that's often how it went, but there was also a civil aspect. The civilians in the surrounding regions and their physical safety were often the leverage that kept those rebellious forces at bay. The soldiers didn't have to risk their lives fighting rebellious armies. No, they could just ensure that the people would suffer if those armies were raised. Sometimes those soldiers took liberties with the citizens' food stores. You know, we're talking about eating all of their grain and potatoes, eating all of the food that was intended to feed them all winter. This could be a serious problem. And sometimes those billeted soldiers would beat the locals or conscript the young men into the army. Neither of those things were good either, and sometimes people died. But then there was the inevitable sexual violence. And were you one of those people who was involved in a potential rebellion, the prospect of the forcible and often public rape of either yourself or one of your family members was very likely enough to get you to think twice. And then, by the Renaissance or so, all of those castles had given way to palaces and chateaus and large rural estates, so instead of billeted soldiers living in the regional lord's castle, they stayed in the homes of the civilians. All of that potential abuse, which was once a public and purposeful force for putting a rebellious population down, was now a private and deeply personal, and often, because no one else was watching, often a much worse form of abuse. Now, billeting in general was a controversial tactic. At least I should say it was controversial when it was used against white people. You know, no one seemed to mind billeting when it was a 
colonized population of brown people across the world. I mean, you know, some priests and philosophers, sure, but no one who could do anything about it. But when it was a group of God-fearing Europeans, well, it just didn't look good. But then again, King Louis of France was all about controversy. In his campaign against the Huguenots, Louis used a police force, a military internal police force called the Dragoons. We call this policy of billeting them in Huguenot households the Dragonades. The Dragoons were mounted musketeers. They were kind of a mobile infantry. They didn't fight on horseback. They just rode their horses into place and got in line to fight. They were France's only real standing army, and they were deeply loyal to the king. That's why Louis chose to use them in his abuses of the Huguenots. Now, while the billeting aspect was technically legal, the abuses that they inflicted upon the Huguenots, none of that was legal. And they did all of that stuff we just talked about, the eating of food, the beating, the conscription, and the rape, only they dialed it all up to eleven. However, as horrible and illegal as all of that was, what were the people to do here? I mean, who do you call when the internal police force are the criminals? And, you know, those soldiers who did the worst abuses might get chewed out by their superiors, but they didn't get fired, they didn't get arrested or punished, this was the policy. An unofficial policy, sure, but those dragoons were always just shuffled off to some other Huguenot household where they could leave another swath of broken lives in their wake. It's debatable whether or not this is the case, but many people at the time said that those dragoons who were the worst behaved, who committed the worst offenses against their Huguenot hosts, were shuffled off to the best homes. You know, the richest homes, with the prettiest daughters where they could do the most damage. Were you a Huguenot that wanted to avoid all of that horror? You wanted your money and property and food and family to stay safe? There was a simple answer to all of that. All you had to do was convert. Become a Catholic. I mean, the king is only billeting dragoons in Huguenot households. If you agree to convert to Catholicism, the soldiers would leave your pantry and your wife and your family unmolested. That's the route that a lot of Huguenots took, much like many of the Jews back in Spain in the 1490s. Also, like many of those Jewish people, Many of the Huguenots just lied about it. Yep, we sure are Catholic. Good to be with you. Others, though, were unwilling to convert, even falsely. Some of those hid their food and their women away so that there was virtually nothing for those Huguenot soldiers to do except openly kill them. Some, a foolish few, fought. They lost those fights, but... That was really causing problems for the king. You know, problems in the optics of this whole operation. The Dragonades were an effective system of conversion by the sword, but imperfect. 
The optics looked bad, and it left the Huguenots a lot of wiggle room. And that was all the fault of that pesky Edict of Nantes. That's why, in 1685, King Louis promulgated the Edict of Fontainebleau. That was an edict that repealed Nantes. It removed all of the legal protections for the Huguenot population of France. All of the rights that we take for granted in the modern world were just gone on one day in October of 1685. The freedom of religion, obviously, gone. Louis ordered all Huguenot churches burned to the ground, every last one of them. Catholicism had always been the state religion, but now it was the only religion. How about freedom of assembly? I like that one. Well, that was gone too. Neither protests nor religious congregations for the Huguenots were allowed, and oftentimes those protests and congregations were one and the same. Do you remember back when we talked about the Glorious Revolution, Argyle's rebellion up in Scotland. There were those groups of Scottish Covenanters who gathered in congregations of armed parishioners to hear sermons of royal oppression from the Bible. The Huguenots in France did much the same thing and were doing so at almost exactly the same time. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what they call foreshadowing. But how about the freedoms of speech and the press? Well, the army arrested any Huguenots that spoke out because they had no freedom to speak. Any Huguenots that owned a printing press had that press liberated by the king's army for royal needs and then were often executed on the spot for publishing seditious materials. It was a good old-fashioned religious cleansing. In the face of all of that, the Huguenots took what was really the only option remaining to them. They left. They went everywhere, almost everywhere. A lot of Huguenots, those that were rich enough to afford a decent piece of land, or those that were so poor that they had to sell themselves into servitude, a lot of them sailed west. Those were the Huguenots who established cities in the colonies, very much like Cap Francais there in Haiti, those who established that city and then fought alongside Lauro de Graff and Andrew Levu and Michael André soon. But Germany also welcomed a ton of exiles, thanks mostly to a deeply and perhaps even zealously Calvinist leader there called Friedrich William. He was the great elector of Brandenburg and the Duke of Prussia, generally called the great elector of Brandenburg-Prussia. He promulgated the Edict of Potsdam, which accepted any Huguenot refugees that made their way to his land. Denmark and Sweden and really most of Protestant Europe also welcomed any Huguenots that could make their way there with one big exception that country is a territory that we might assume would welcome as many Calvinist Huguenots as possible I'm of course talking about the Netherlands a Calvinist country 
But there were very few French people who were willing to step foot into the Netherlands, and most of the Dutch didn't want any French people doing so anyway. There was a lot of bad blood there that went back for some time. Remember when all of those Sephardi Jews fled Spain and Spain really began to suffer? When all of the educated, literate doctors and merchants and artisans, when they went elsewhere to England or Portugal or in large numbers to the Ottoman Empire and the Netherlands, and all of those other countries really prospered from their presence. Well, that was happening again here in France. Wait, what is that? Brain Drain! French King Louis celebrated Christmas this year at his Versailles Resort. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of France's best and brightest were chased out of their homes by jack-booted dragoon troopers. So much for goodwill toward men, am I right? Across the creek, the docks swarmed with Englishmen eager to welcome their Protestant brothers with food and beer and good cheer. Now that's what I call a Merry Christmas. I really like that voice. But all of those architects and mathematicians and physicists. I mean, there was one guy in France, a Huguenot, who was at the time studying steam power. I mean, he lost years of work when he was persecuted by the dragoons and then forced to leave his work behind when he fled to England and then on to Germany. Imagine what we might have had if he had had those lost years, some of the best years of his life, to work his hardest. I mean, we might have a steam-powered Queen Anne's Revenge with a steampunk Blackbeard. He might have, you know, a hydraulic peg leg and a mega gun. It would be amazing, but we didn't have any of that because King Louis of France had to get scared of a bunch of hot, fake witches. It's disgusting. However, that's speculation. Speculation I enjoy, but speculation nonetheless. See, there's a lot of debate over the Huguenot exodus and the demographics involved. And we'll talk about the colonial and piratical implications when we talk about Florida and Mississippi and Louisiana. And perhaps most prescient to our story moving forward the Cape of Good Hope, and Madagascar. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 
For now, though, we're talking about England. European problems concern us today. Those Huguenots made their way across the Channel to English shores. This happened almost exclusively in 1685 and early 1686. The King of England, Charles II, had just died. His brother, James II, was an unapologetic Catholic. As many as half a million Huguenots made their way to England, and to many of them, King James' actions there in England looked a hell of a lot like what had happened to them back in France. And it's really not fair to compare King James' actions to King Louis' Huguenot persecution. I mean, James wasn't great by any stretch of the imagination. Look at the Scottish killing time, for example. But most historians agree that James wasn't trying to cleanse his country. He was merely promoting the interests of English Catholics. And I personally believe in the freedom of religion. I despise the very idea of a state religion. After all, one of my favorite Englishmen of all time, J.R.R. Tolkien, was super Catholic and super English, and I think that's wonderful. But the English Protestants of the late 1600s were not nearly so accepting. They were angry about King James and his religion, and they were also scared. Those fears were enhanced by the arrival of the Huguenots who had horror stories from their homes of what King Louis, a close, close personal friend of King James, had done to them. We couldn't say that the Huguenots were behind the movement to topple King James II. Mostly that was a bunch of English nobles, but they certainly lent their voices to the clamor. They told stories of royal Catholic oppression and never failed to remind everyone of how James grew up in France and took communion whenever he was in France and how his sister was a Catholic married to Louis' own brother. Of course, the English didn't need much reminding of that, but the Huguenots became something of a lightning rod for the English revolutionaries in the lead-up to the Glorious Revolution. And I don't imagine that most of those French people were all that excited when William of Orange, a Dutchman, a leader in the Netherlands, sailed over and took the throne from James. But even a Dutch king was better than a Catholic like Louis. It's truly unfortunate that we don't have the recollections of one particular writer when he arrived in England into all of this chaos. William Dampier, our old friend, arrived back in England shortly after all of this took place. However, he ends his narrative in his ship-bound voyage into the Channel. He does mention the Dutch ships that he saw, which confused him, but doesn't give his opinion on the state of politics at the time. You know how when you go on a vacation and then come back, there's this sense of, I guess, whiplash as you return to the reality of everyday life? Imagine that 
Only instead of, you know, a couple of weeks vacation, it's been 13 years since you've been home. Of course, Dampier had his own problems. He had a wife that he'd barely met and he had no money. But he did have the makings of a great book. However, everything had changed so much in the time that he had been gone. King Charles, dead, King James, deposed, and the Dutch Prince of Orange, William, was now sitting on the throne alongside his wife, King James' daughter, Mary. But what I imagine shocked Dampier the most is how close everyone seemed to be to war. The alliances that were formed in the wake of Louis's persecution of the Huguenots and the Glorious Revolution were a complex affair. The complexity stems mainly from the fact that the Holy Roman Empire wasn't really a thing. It didn't really exist. There was an imperial diet that, alongside the emperor, of course, had the power to make decisions of war and alliance for the whole of the empire. But I think of them kind of like the UN. There were too many forces at play in the empire that were often at odds with each other to really get anything done on an imperial level. The two main forces in the empire were split between two families, one of them Catholic and one of them Protestant. The first of these was the Austrian Habsburgs, of course, the Catholic powerhouse in Europe, of which the Holy Roman Emperor, Leo I, was a member. But then, on the other side, there were the Prussians, who we met earlier in the person of the Grand Elector Friedrich William, Duke of Prussia. Friedrich William was a member of the House of Hohenzollern, the same noble house that would give rise to the German Empire in 1871, the same that led the Second Reich and led Germany into World War I. The roots of what would become of the Holy Roman Empire, the split between the Germans under the Hohenzollerns and the Austro-Hungarians under the Habsburgs, that can be found in this war, and they can be defined mostly by those alliances that were so complex. The first alliance we need to mention is the Holy League. We've talked about them already. That was the alliance between Russia and Austria and Poland, as well as, you know, parts of Hungary and Bohemia that fought off the Ottoman Empire at the gates of Vienna. Currently, they were embroiled in a war with the Ottomans in Wallachia and Transylvania, the Romanian Crimea, and the other parts of Hungary. That alliance, the Holy League, looked very much poised to crush the Ottoman forces in Eastern Europe. That's why Leopold I, in his role as the Grand Duke of Austria, not as Holy Roman Empire, that's why he felt safe in negotiating another alliance. Not an imperial alliance, but an Austrian alliance. And this second coalition is much more important to our story moving forward. That is the grand alliance between Leopold I of Austria and William of Orange and of England. England and the Netherlands, under William, were allied with Austria against their common enemy, King Louis of France. 
Now, Louis, always a canny leader, saw this state of affairs, realized he was in a tight spot, and engaged in some behind-the-scenes negotiations to secure his borders and peace for his nation. But then... Reversal! In a surprise move, Russian Tsar Peter the Great marched his army into the Crimea, where they ambushed the Turks in a dashing attack. Peter the Great suffered a sound defeat at the hand of the Turk, so in a bold move he marched in another army who took the field. They were also soundly defeated. A classic Russian move luring their army into a devastating trap with the appearance of a weak and incompetent army. Thousands are dead. As is the trend for Russian armies, the same trend that we see in the Napoleonic Wars and World War I and World War II, the Russians were starting this war off very poorly. Now, Louis of France, who was, remember, definitely not allied with the Ottoman Empire, Louis changed his tune when Austria was forced to commit their forces in the east to support the Russians. He went from placating his enemies and negotiating a peace deal to preparing for war. He bolstered France's ports and shores. He also put a ton of fresh troops on the border. However, King Louis's 30,000 best troops, led by his eldest son, Louis le Grand Dauphin, marched past those border forts into the Rhineland. Now, those troops took a number of cities in a matter of weeks. It was another quick series of victories, as the French were accustomed to. This campaign, in October of 1688, pushed the French frontier all the way to the Rhine, a very defensible position and one that King Louis greatly desired. That's what brought the Germans into the fight. Thus far, it had just been the Grand Alliance. But the Grand Elector of Brandenburg, Duke of Prussia, Friedrich William, and you know, I should point out here that he was basically a king at this point. He was nearly as powerful as Leopold I, and his son would actually be named King in Prussia, although not King of Prussia. Technically, they were still part of the Holy Roman Empire. But Friedrich William organized a third alliance. That alliance was the League of Augsburg. This was a separate coalition, but ideologically aligned to the Grand Alliance and even the Holy League, even though they were almost entirely Protestant. They stood in solidarity in opposition to the French. The forces involved in the League of Augsburg basically included everyone that we might consider part of modern-day Germany. Prussia, and Brandenburg, of course, as well as Bavaria and Saxony and the Rhineland. They also added in Denmark and Savoy to their ranks. The arrangement of the armies in November of 1688 looks a lot like the Western Front in November of 1914. The location was different. It was further to the east. 
The Rhine was the frontier, with modern Belgium and Luxembourg, and even a good chunk of modern Germany held by France. But the armies in place were similar, if not exactly the same. In the far north, we have the Dutch army. Slightly to the south, directly below them, we have the German League of Augsburg, led by Prussia. Then, of course, there's neutral Switzerland in the Alpine region, but then south of that, there are the Austrian forces of the Grand Alliance in Italy. But the big difference here, the real wild card in this fight, is England. They were, when James II was in command, supposed to be allied with France, much like they were in World War I. However, thanks to that revolution which took place right before this war broke out, they were fighting against the Bourbons. Now, I say they were fighting, but there really wasn't a ton of fighting when this war initially broke out. Mostly that was thanks to Le Grand Dauphin, the leader of the French forces, King Louis' son. He employed a strategy of non-confrontation. The Grand Dauphin was famously average. He looked much below average when compared to his father. He just wasn't all that bright, but his real strength was in military matters. Now, he wasn't a tactical genius by any means, but he was smart enough not to do anything that would get a ton of men killed, and right now, he found his armies in a situation that might lead to a ton of men getting killed. This was the worst possible situation that Louis and his son might find themselves in. Everybody was allied against them, and that was something for which France had not prepared. So, instead of, you know, standing firm and defending the Rhine, which would inevitably lead to the death of all his men, the French forces chose instead to tear down the walls of the fortresses that they held. They took as much food as they could from the locals, and then burned their fields and scorched the Rhineland. This was a scorched-earth campaign, and a methodical retreat. It was probably the right move, and it bought France quite a bit of time. However, the hammer was still coming. But here's the real question about all of this. Why does any of it matter? Why are we talking about a continental war? What does that have to do with pirates? Why have we spent time talking about King Louis and his lovers and the Huguenots and, you know, the birth of Germany? Why does all of that matter? There are a lot of reasons. Some of them are less tangible, you know, cultural and religious and economic factors that are going to impact the pirates, stuff that we'll touch on in the weeks to come, but most importantly, most directly, there is the colonial question. This war, which would go on to become the Nine Years' War, a war that Europe realized was not going to be the small, quick war that they had anticipated, it was going to engulf the entire world. We need to keep an eye on everything that's happening here. For example, the Ottoman Empire on the Eastern Front 
and the Red Sea. We're going to need to keep an eye on that because the pirates, some of whom we've already met, are going to become Red Sea men as a consequence, a direct consequence of this war. The occupation of Madagascar and the pirate haven built there, either Libertalia or St. Mary's, depending on who you ask, that was a consequence of this war. And on down the road, this particular conflict was the primary cause of the War of the Spanish Succession, a war that would employ the Nassau pirates on their way to becoming the most famous and feared force on the high seas. All of this, all of these consequences can be traced back to this conflict, the root of which can be largely traced back to one factor, one mentally challenged and physically disabled and invalid factor. A human being with a tail. That is, of course, the bewitched king, Charles II of Spain. Charles was the product of generations of Habsburg inbreeding, and he had no heir. He likely couldn't even produce an heir, but even if he could, he probably shouldn't have. His Inability to produce an heir was the main factor in the inheritance clause that was included in Louis XIV's marriage to Maria Theresa. The Habsburgs knew full well that King Charles of Spain would never have a son to take over the throne, and they spent a lot of energy ensuring that they would keep control of the crown of Spain. That's the main point of the Grand Alliance. I mean, there was some territorial stuff in there and the anti-French military alliance, but the real purpose that had very clear and direct language was to secure the throne of Spain for the closest valid Habsburg, Leopold I, Holy Roman Emperor. There was another closer Habsburg candidate, but not valid the very same man who had so recently led French forces into the Rhineland and then, you know, back out, Louis, the Grand Dauphin, the son of Louis XIV and Maria Theresa, was much more closely related to the throne than Leopold I. But, due to that marriage alliance, he was legally barred from the throne. However, everybody knew that King Louis of France had no intention of adhering to that clause, which is why, here in 1688, we see so many alliances against him. Remember that this wasn't just a fight for Spain. That might be enough in itself to justify a war, but the throne of Spain was an imperial throne, and it controlled at this point more territory than any other empire in history ever had. There was Europe, and there was America, and there was Asia. Huge, gigantic swaths of land that belonged to Spain. This was the prize of all prizes. That's largely why William of Orange and of England chose to ally himself with his ideological enemy in the Holy Roman Empire. And for his aid in helping to secure a Habsburg victory... Both nations, England and the Netherlands, 
had some vague assurances that they would get their cut. Now, what that cut was isn't exactly defined in the language of the treaty, but it was generally understood to include French America, basically Canada and Louisiana. It's that piece of territory that's going to concern us moving forward. We're going to be talking about King William's War in North America. But first, before we get to that, we are going to talk about the colonization of North America. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, and there have been a ton of you this week. I really appreciate that. Everybody who has signed up to support the show through the website or the PayPal. And we're actually revamping the website right now, so hopefully we'll be able to make that easier in the future. Everybody out there who has recommended this show to your friends and family helped us to get the word out, and everybody who has done something as simple as leave a rating for the show. All of you make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. I know you've checked them out. I've seen the YouTube page of their video. So why not go and give them a like on YouTube, or a follow on Facebook, or go buy one of their albums. They're fantastic, and they deserve it, and I really appreciate them letting me use their song. After you're done doing all of that, you can always find us at our website, piratehistorypodcast.com, as well as on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight